And what does it what does it say on the screen? Oh shoot, that says Art House Drive-In? Splittooth Media's latest film podcast? Aren't we the the co-hosts of that podcast? Are you Robert? Are you T? Oh snap! Is that is that our faces up in the sky? Uh, looking pretty good, looking pretty good. I guess we'll be coming back here pretty uh, pretty often then, at least every week. At least every week, talking about at least one film or two short films, or I guess we'll be going on a on a journey through the world of our house film. I guess. Yeah, that's pretty. That's gonna be pretty cool. <laughs> Come along, everybody. More room in the drive-in. I don't know how we got here, but I love it. Welcome, everybody, um, the flocks of listeners, to the fourth installment of the Art House. Of of the Art House Drive-In podcast where uh i'm taking my cousin the geologist geologist extraordinaire on a journey through uh art house film avant-garde film experimental film whatever you want to call it um <laughs> well, thank you it's, it is uh it's a pleasure <laughs> to be here and it's going great so far i'm robert uh that's t and today we have an illustrious guest our first guest ever oh god i don't know about illustrious matt cohen on the podcast um uh, uh, a dear friend of mine from the NYU days, which is only like what six months ago or something, yeah, eight yeah, months ago, I, but it's still something that's always shocking to me that it was not like twelve <laughs> years ago, like it feels. Yeah, it feels like ten to twenty years ago. Uh, but we were in the master's program for cinema studies together at NYU, um, illustrious grads of 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 the college, and uh, today he has picked the film, and and he has sort of popped in on this journey as a as a as a uh, substitute captain if you will of the of this of this ship so very happy to have you here very uh very good to be here thank you for having me yeah and you know what what's going on in everybody's life today t i know you're climbing again which oh. is nice oh i'm i'm climbing whenever i'm not doing this or at work yeah yeah so and that's I, I've, been, good. I've been watching lots of japanese films i've watched house for the first time which was awesome which i can only describe as like an even more psychedelic avant-garde scooby-doo live action scooby-doo um which was amazing yeah i've I've Um, been uh i've been catching up uh on uh big math on netflix which is which goes against everything that i have to do uh that i have to say in terms (laughs) of like content and all that kind of crap but uh it's it's one of these comedy shows that's just not afraid to be as stupid as possible and it um i don't know it tickles me and today we are going to watch a film an illustrious film from one of the most famous filmmakers ever orson wells and we're watching um macbeth the 1948 macbeth so uh matt chose this film why'd you choose this film matthew um well uh you know, I thought of our connection, like our NYU connection, and uh, thought of a yeah. film from my NYU days that I, I thought really um, summed up sort of where 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 both my feet are in two different camps about like avant-garde cinema, like how uh, you know I'm both sort of firmly in the uh, you know experimental sense, but then also like always pulled back to that genre filmmaking sort of 
sensibility that um, I think Macbeth captures both of them really well uh, because Orson Welles is just such a such an eccentric cat that that you really get such a an interesting mix of the two here. Yeah, and the first time that we spoke, I believe, was in an adaptation class um, taught by Robert Stam mm-hmm. as well. So I, when you picked this, I was like, oh man, we're kicking it old school. Yeah, there you go. Adaptation going back to the here. roots of your friendship. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, we don't have to do this whole origin story thing, but you know, did you find film studies immediately when you got to NYU? How did you get into this uh, weird world? No, so yeah, so we met in the grad program, but I went to NYU for film studies for undergrad as well um but i didn't go into the university like that i went in uh as a pre-med student uh because i wanted to do uh i wanted to do pathology i wanted to be an autopsy technician because like which if if anybody knows if anything any uh people know about me about my taste in film it's just all gore related so like when i tell people this in the film world they're like oh yeah that tracks i guess um but yeah, I failed chemistry real hard my freshman year, so I was like, I need to fucking change my oh, major. Oh boy! And, uh, I, and I relate. So cinema hard studies to that. was the only one that was like, I'm not gonna hate this. I'm gonna love this. Right. I'm like, mm-hmm. it's like it wasn't. Uh, it was not a career move. It was a, what can I do to survive move, and it was a very good decision. Yeah. I have to say. Understood. T is the scientist of this podcast, so he can relate. I can. Um, that being said, chemistry is not where I shine. Uh, in fact, I was actually told by my chemistry professor freshman year that I had anti-Midas hands because every <laughs> chemistry experiment I touched turned to shit. <laughs> um, and I tried to make the argument like, well, hey, Professor Machacek, hey, name drop, what up? Um uh, I mean, in the story, like, it was bad that he turned everything to gold. So, like, that's that's a good thing, right? She was like, no. No, it's not. <laughs> Pass that I course love- with a solid yeah. C. I love that you tried to turn the tables on her, though. And and also, you're, like, in a science lineage. Your brother's a scientist. Your mom's a science teacher. So you're, like... Yeah, pressure, like- pressure was on. Luckily, I, yeah. I picked one of the laziest sciences out there. <laughs> and what what was your reaction to Macbeth? Because we've had a good run of films where you've enjoyed yourself on this podcast so far. So I'm glad that hopefully it's continued. So I won't say Uh that was a long pause. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing. Um, While I am a geology major, I'm also a theater minor. And so Uh when I saw Macbeth, I was super excited because I actually do enjoy Macbeth quite a bit. Um, Yeah, it's it is it is objectively the most badass of of yeah. Shakespeare plays. I mean, it's got everything. It's got witches, it's got kings, it's got fights to the death, it's got intrigue, murder. It's just a solid play. Um, I I enjoyed it for the source material. I'll say that much. Ooh. I, okay. I, I, I kind of well, thought it was over-dramatized almost. Mm-hmm. Like, the lines almost came out sounding cheesy. Okay, I love it. This this is the first conflict on the show. I love. No, this. no, I don't I'm think it's a happy. conflict. I think what it does is it sets a sets a mission for me that I have to convince you otherwise by the end of this podcast. And I'm totally open yeah. to that. If you can yeah. convince well, me, I am 100 percent down for this. Well, on the flip side, I loved it. I was very impressed by it. I mean, um, as T will point out, and as others I'm sure will point out, I 
I think my personality goes towards being the dissident where I hear Orson Welles and how everybody loves yeah. him in the mainstream and I'm like I don't want to like that movie yeah, absolutely. which is such a negative which is such a negative outlook to have so I really need to sort of work on that but I love I love this film because I like weird Orson Welles and I don't even think I've seen the weirdest Orson Welles so hopefully you'll give me some Rex. Uh, I would like to hear why this is a weird Orson Welles because I haven't seen much slash any other of his so, films. So so I think a lot what you, of what do you what, think, Matt? a lot of yeah so yeah, oh, yeah I'll definitely take the reins on this. So I took I took an Orson Welles seminar uh, from the from the legendary Welles scholar uh, Bill Simon mm-hmm. at NYU, and he uh, he sort of instilled in me a lot of a lot of beliefs about Welles that I like to rattle off. Um, but I think that I think that what comes through in a lot of early Wells work is a sort of um, sort of completeness in terms of um, classical filmmaking that sort of um, he sort of follows the the guidelines of like you have to know the rules in order to break them um, and I think mm-hmm. that his early works really cement like Citizen Kane and Magnificent Emerson really cement um, his his knowledge of the rules of classical filmmaking while he's still doing experimental things here and there, um, like famously, like the the newsreel sequence in Citizen Kane and hmm. stuff like that. Okay, yeah. but, so um, so where in Macbeth did he break the rules? I guess. So so to me, um, so he's known as being the most like cinematic filmmaker of his time, using the form as strongly as possible. And to me, this film reads as avant-garde um, in the world of film and in the world of Orson Welles, in that it's incredibly uncinematic in a lot of moments mm-hmm. um it's incredibly theatrical um and it uses a lot of um yes. theatrical conventions or, or conventions that um leaked into the film world through theater like the long take and stuff like that in order to to sort of simulate um you sitting in front of a live performance just just let it go and i think that um on the surface it really has a lot of those levels but as and we'll get into it as you look into more and more things that are happening in with the film, some of the production history of the film, it becomes clear that it's it's at once incredibly theatrical while also having this incredible, strange cinematic experimentation to it. Uh, especially yeah, when it comes to me, especially when it comes to its relationship to other film styles and stuff like that. That um, okay, and for that relates back me, to I loved it. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and for me, I loved like the strangeness I could connect when you, when you talk about that because I think this film has a really strange atmosphere not just eerie or um you know scary you know whatever sort of atmosphere they're going for it's all about how he sort of uses the frame and uses Mm -hmm. the set design like the set design is impeccable in this movie in a really interesting way like i think the the manic energy we'll we'll talk all about this in the analysis but i think what i found most interesting is how he used sort of the limited resources he had absolutely uh, and and sort of injected emotion into into the scenes yeah but we'll, we'll get to yeah. that as well um i was just right learning now, about that too but yeah that's something we can talk about in the history section yeah and and now we'll do the the our uh, classic a classic robert uh fast and dirty history section um a classic of four episodes but uh so if you don't know orson wells he's one of the most famous artists i guess american artists of all time yeah, to, to definitely me, one of the, the most famous filmmakers he's the most american filmmaker of all time and that's that's Agreed. Just having from heard heard him speak on so many different subjects and stuff, he's to me he embodies what the classic American filmmaker was. Exactly, and he was 
you know, lived from 1915 to 1985. And uh, that's the, you know, the, the math side of it. But uh, so he was an innovator in radio, theater, and film. Um, in theater, he co-founded the Mercury Theater Company, where he put on plays like Caesar or whatever. But he's also most famous for um, directing productions for the Federal Theater Project, which was like a New Deal, um, great, you know, depression project funded by the government to put on sort of like public arts programming and it's um, one of his most famous works not think about the whole great depression thing yeah pretty much and so and one of his most famous plays was an all african-american cast of macbeth coincidentally uh, enough that what what they call the voodoo macbeth which i've seen um there's a few film clips that exist of it uh promotional clips that are that are uh, like incredible just like the you could totally have seen him making a film version of that uh production if hollywood wasn't so racist but you know yeah that would have been incredible hopefully someone makes that someday maybe maybe someone will. Yeah. Manuel miranda maybe mm. let's and let's in, hope uh, in... <laughs> uh, you know what that's something i'm not gonna get into <laughs> we'll get into that later in radio he had Mer- uh he had mercury theater on air um and uh, which is mostly adapting sort of literary works um, like H.G. H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds, very famously, where people were freaking out because they thought there was an alien invasion because um, it felt very authentic to them. Mm-hmm. But he also did um, Treasure Island, which we listened to in class one time, Matt, which was did, really good. Uh, in the, in the um, uh, Orson Welles seminar, we also listened to an excerpt, and I've heard the whole thing because I ended up writing my uh, final paper on it. But he did a, an incredible yeah. adaptation of Dracula as well. That, um, I've been wanting to listen to that. That for was a while. that was the first yeah. broadcast of the Mercury Theater uh, radio uh, production, really? and it's it's really um, to me it really sets the tone for his whole career. Um, and I think that wow. um, that that uh, initial foray into horror really really continues throughout his career, even in films so unhorrific as like Magnificent Embersons and stuff like that. Yeah. I've been wanting to talk with you about Herzog's um, Nosferatu for a long Ooh, time, but we'll save that movie. for another episode. I mm-hmm. loved it so much. but uh, uh, And he also did like Count of Monte Cristo. He did a lot of literary adaptations for radio. And from what I've heard, they're really, really good and solid. So yeah, check he, was, out. he was um, very but, much a, uh, a great works kind of man. Like he, he really yeah. um, respected the English canon, uh, even, even yeah. if like today that's something that's not necessarily considered a good thing. Um, he really, yeah. he really uh, respected the great works and took them as something to interpret on his own and and um, yeah. continue and, and as now, like a mythology. Agreed. Yeah. And now for his film, um, you might have heard of a little film called Citizen Kane out there in the audience that he made um, in 1941. He also made um, Magnificent Ambersons in 1942, which has a long sort of production history and a lot of drama behind it. Oh, yeah. um, the Lady from Shanghai, 1947, Touch of Evil in 1958, and my two favorites, um, other than Macbeth as well, Chimes at Midnight in 1965 and F is for Fake in 1973. F is for Fake is my favorite of his because it's very strange and really interesting. Yeah. And I love, I mean, I have a soft spot for art that like, not self-reflexively talks about art but his his discussion of sort of what authentic art means is really yeah, interesting in it's, that film. it's a very strong essay film i would say I'd, I'd say like and probably one of the most fun essay films too Cer- certainly because yeah. he's uh throughout his entire career he had this like persona of being a magician um he very famously almost always appeared wearing fake noses he just had an obsession with 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 the disguise a fake nose could give you uh he says that like there's like one period of time 
during I think Magnificent Ambersons in like the course that the film takes place. Uh, not Magnificent Ambersons, uh, Citizen Kane, where he's not wearing a fake nose, and it's like a big moment. Mm-hmm. It's like the one time Wells is not wearing a fake nose. Um, so he had. He, I never he, heard that. He always Wait, had this. So was like, he wearing a fake nose in Macbeth too? I think so, or at least some sort of like makeup on his nose. It's also like he's got that weird like Joker smile going on the whole time. Yeah, yeah. He he always That's had some sort right. of like disguise on. Um, That's interesting. I yeah. never heard that. That's awesome. Yeah, and um, I mean, we can also talk about his sort of style and technical revolution and all that. But I think what I wanted to talk about as well is that when when he was making film he would always butt heads with sort of the studio system and he was seen as an outsider. But today, when you talk about Orson Welles, like I grew up always knowing what Citizen Kane was if even before I saw it, and he's sort of a darling of the canonized cinema. But when he was actually making film, it was not, you know, like that, which I think is sort of, maybe it just comes with time, you know what I mean? Like people didn't think of Cassavetes in the way that we think of him now at the time and things like that, but it always it's always strange to me that we think of him as this sort of canonized figure, but at the time he was such a dissident mm-hmm. in, in the medium. It might be yeah, that and they're I think, just like wine. It needs a little bit of time to age first. Absolutely. And I, and I think that, um, I mean, even using the wine comparison still, it's, it's still an acquired taste for a lot of people. And I'm not trying to, you know, put myself above anything. Um, some people are Wells... like red. Some people like white. Exactly. Some people yeah. buy the gallons of uh, barefoot Moscato and drink them all in one night. Exactly. I mean, I'm I'm not opposed to That's that. A very specific and... reference. Oh, <laughs> weird. I mean, we were talking about it before. Like, yeah. you guys were like, "Well, Wells seemed like he might have been kind of a tool." Like just just from uh, the yes. just from the yeah. just from the the thing. But but I said that like. He's the he's the kind of guy that because he's so um, in his own world in a lot of ways he'll always come across as a tool. But in my mind, he like just he earns it. Like he he can justify it through the fact that he's just like brilliant. So he's like that yeah. smart kid in class who acts like he's better than everyone, but he actually is much <laughs> yeah, smarter like than everyone. Yeah, you else. get frustrated and you hate him, but then you're like, shit, he really is just better. Like, than damn, me. if he's not the best right. cop we got. Yeah. <laughs> And that that transitions well to Macbeth, I think. We'll we'll say it's a good transition, <laughs> but 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 this film was made on sort of a shoestring budget. It was made in twenty three days, mm-hmm. That's um, as well. And uh, originally, it was made with like Republic, and they thought that they would become like a prestige production by putting on Macbeth. That they were going to put on a hoity toity um, Macbeth adaptation. Yeah, Macbeth with but apparently, they were not yeah. happy. Apparently, they were not happy with the picture. A lot of people, when the film came out. Uh, they hated the Scottish accents in the film. Mm. They hated that he changed aspects of the play. They hated this and that, added characters, all that, which I think we'll talk about when we talk about adaptation later on. Mm-hmm. But um, the reception of this film was not positive at all when it first came out. Yeah, and I, well, I think well, um, I think going from that sort of was like part of why I latched onto it so much um, as, as um, really what I consider wells's like unsung masterpiece just because it it really has um maintained that sort of reputation as being a lesser film or you know people talk about it in terms of its history or maybe some of its um expressionistic aesthetic tendencies or something like that but i don't think um Mm -hmm. i don't think the full picture is really painted uh that often when it comes to Macbeth. so I, i felt it was definitely worth talking about that's why we're here you know literally why we're here absolutely we're here to paint that portrait so that's our that's our job that's our that's our calling 
So, I mean, that's enough of the history stuff. We're probably going to talk more history during the analysis because I'm sure it'll just bleed in. It always does. Um, But but I think it's time for T's famous, famous (laughs) synopses. All right. So, synopsis. I mean, this is Macbeth. So, for those of you who studied theater or maybe read it for an English class, it's going to sound very familiar. It might sound a lot like Sparknotes, but eh. (laughs) Um, so, I mean, it's Macbeth. You have, uh, the two, two, I mean, I guess military heroes, um, Macbeth, the Thane of, of Gloms, I want to say, something like that, uh, and, uh, Banquo, also an important person, couldn't tell you if he was the Thane, uh, they come across three witches who prophesize that, uh, Macbeth is going to become the Thane of Cawdor, and then later on, the king of all Scotland, um, and then interestingly enough, Banquo is going to father a lineage of kings. Um, they're driven off uh, as a priest character comes in, uh, but these these prophecies start to e- eat away at these guys. They're kind of wondering if there's any uh, merit to them. Don't think there is until all of a sudden, turns out the Thane of Cawdor betrayed them and is getting killed. Now Macbeth is the uh, Thane of Cawdor. So now he's thinking, <laughs> all right, I'm going to be king, but wait, fuck, there already is a king. Oh, um, that, so, that, that dastardly Duncan. Oh, that dastardly <laughs> King Duncan. What are you going to do about it, man? Uh, <laughs> so he confides in his wife, which turns out to be the biggest mistake, because uh, she goes all murder happy, and it's like, yeah, kill your king, kill your king, do it, punk, you won't. Um, <laughs> he does, spoiler alert, I guess. If you haven't checked out Macbeth, I don't feel bad about this. So, uh, at his wife's uh, urgings, he goes and does the deed and frames some of his uh, some of his men for it. Um, and uh, this quickly kind of spirals down into a path of uh, tyranny and uh, suspicion for Macbeth, as he doesn't know who to trust because he knows Banquo is supposed to have a lineage of kings. How can he do that as if he's the king? Um, so while an investigation by Macduff on the king's death is going on, um, he also tries to get killers to hunt down and murder Banquo and his son, I want to say like Flance or Fleance, I think it was Fleance. Um, Steve. Uh, only manages to kill Banquo though, so that dude's alive. Um, as is going on, like Macbeth is going crazier and crazier. Lady Macbeth is unable to sleep and is sleepwalking and keeps think- thinking that her hands are bloody. Um, God, I'm trying to like go fast but also remember important things. Uh, he gets another prophecy that he can't be killed uh, by a man born of a woman. And also, if, um, I want to say the Burn- Burnham-, Burnham Woods uh, make it- makes it to his castle, if, th- if that doesn't happen, he's good to go. He can't be killed. So he starts getting cocky. Um, and starts building up forces to fight against uh, Macduff, whose family he's also murdered somewhere along the lines. Um, long story short, uh, Macduff is not wild about that, gets a force of his own uh, with uh, Benquo's son kind of as their, uh, as their rallying point. And they chop down Burnham Woods to bring it along with them to use his cover. And as they're clashing and uh, Macbeth still thinks he's in the lead, it turns out uh, <laughs> Macduff's mom had a C-section. And so that doesn't count as being born of a woman, I guess. Uh, it doesn't. Untimely chop, ripped. Head. 
Yeah, untimely torn from his mother's womb. I I mean, I'm no doctor. I'm barely even a scientist, but I think that still counts as being born of a woman. But uh, it's good enough for the witches, I suppose. Um, yeah. <laughs> and They'll take what they can get. Yeah, and so, you know, sucks to be Macbeth. Um, somewhere along the lines, I think Lady Macbeth jumped off a cliff. And that, that's all I got for you. Yeah. I mean, again, spoilers for Macbeth seem a little pointless. Just Yeah, you know, right. It's been, a, it's been around for a couple weeks. You know what At I mean? least so. a couple weeks. If you weren't there for the premiere, if you weren't on the red carpet showing off who you were wearing while you were watching Macbeth. Who are you? You're either streets ahead yeah. or you're streets behind. <laughs> is that like from a song or something? It's from Community. So is... oh. Ripping it off <laughs> okay. hardcore from Community. Yeah. Well, well, well. Thank you for your synopsis, T. Wow. And and now, now is the uh, <laughs> now is the important analysis part, which is I think the part where that where we can really shine in this, because because we can just go crazy and and paint that portrait that we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to start with the the sort of manic energy of the first scene in the film, um, the cauldron sequence where they're creating yes. this sort of clay doll of Macbeth because I just love I love the way it's framed in that close-up and I love the images of the hands clawing at the clay it injects this like incredible emotion right into the film in the beginning spooky as hell from the get-go I loved it I love that part of it yeah I I always um especially because that that opening scene I always describe this movie to people as uh the lost universal monster movie like it's just Mm. like it opens (laughs) up and it's like it could very easily be a James Whale movie or something, something of that line, uh, and I think that um, that holds true throughout a lot of the film in terms of the production design and and whatnot. Yeah, and I think it 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 it's a through line to how simple this film is too. Mm. Like the it's just you know a pot of a, a large pot of water with a bunch of women clawing at clay, but the like the extreme close up and sort of the manicness of their movements mm-hmm. you know is such a good foundation for this film to sort of be built on um with, yeah especially yeah. at a time where witches are people are probably more scared of witches at this point in history than at any other fucking time absolutely yeah i mean it's yeah. it's uh and that extends to dark days mm-hmm. yeah and that extends to the set design too which we talked about before the sets are are beautiful and every all of the stone walls like sort of gnarled and it looks like everything is sweating but it's very cold and everything looks so bare and sort of cruel and that injects so much life you know into every frame and i know that this film was set was was filmed on like rented western sets yeah entirely on a soundstage yeah like how did they do this you know this was 100 percent not what i was expecting um to be like the setting of a castle because in my mind i was imagining like old timey scottish uh scottish castles like the whole kit and caboodle almost hogwarts-esque um and it where all you get really is like a like a crackly tower weird staircase thing the best the best we got was the scene where they were gonna have a feast that was the only point where I was like, oh, yeah, they do live in kind of a castle, don't they? Even then, it's just like this weird, dank dungeon that, like, mm-hmm. you know, doesn't even yeah, look like it sort one. of makes you think about, it makes you think about, like, Lord of the Rings or any of those sort of epic medieval films and, like, you know, using these crazy special effects and all this money to build these gigantic 
you know, pieces of cinema, I guess, when all Orson Welles had is like interesting lighting, interesting framing, uh, an idea of how to get across the spookiness of the space. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Not just like a bunch of money to use, but an idea of how to translate that emotion. And that's really all he needed, which is what I think is most admirable, you know, about this film too. Yeah. Definitely. yeah. It was definitely very theatrical. Um, what I've learned in my very limited experience working um, for like theatrical productions, um, which I've actually had the pleasure of doing so a few times uh it's learning to do a lot with a little yeah and uh, well well we've gone over this i wasn't blown away by this movie they definitely did that like other than my first reaction to uh, oh this doesn't really look much like a castle like it still very much fit the theme of the play and they did uh, they were able to do more than i thought they could with it yeah um and it uh i think it by stripping it down it really highlights other things um, mm. I think it goes back to, um, it, it always to me comes back to Wells just because, you know, you have, you have a man who's been obsessed with, with the classics his entire career. He's been doing it, uh, through, through different mediums for so long. Um, you know, he, he's already adapted Othello at this point. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and that was much more of a traditional adaptation. Uh, so at this point, to me, it feels like he's he. This is his experimental film in that sense, or or it's it's him, re- but it's also him returning to um, himself in a lot of ways. And it, I mean that to basically say in the nicest way that this is like totally a uh, uh, what's the word for it uh, a vanity piece for for Wales. It's him. It's him showing off his his Macbeth you know, in, in opposition to Olivier or, or other great uh, Macbeths of the time. He's, he's saying, this, yeah. is, this is my Macbeth, and it's, uh, it's highlighting something different. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you called it his vanity piece, but at the same time, didn't you also say he starred in every single movie he directed? So couldn't you say all of them well, were kind of vanity pieces? For sure. I, I just mean that uh, he, sort of, <laughs> he sort of strips down everything to the point where, you know, there's sequences where... Um, you know, there's an aside where you know it's just Macbeth's inner inner monologue, and it and it's literally just a shot of of Orson Welles twisting his face around in different in different signs of of concern for five minutes while you hear the voiceover soliloquy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the yeah, and the specific scene that stands out to me too, which we talked about before, is that um that bird's eye view of the set where it looks like. Orson Welles is sort of swallowed up by the stage. Mm-hmm. Like it's like he's such a small point amidst this sort of vast bare land. And that and that contributes to like the madness that he's feeling too. And even the the set, I don't know what if it was painted or something, the set looks like like it's made out of clouds or something. Oh like yeah. That. I mean it, it and looks it's these sort of hard contrast. To me it looks um I've always gotten the sense that it looks organic almost, like sort of yeah. almost each yeah. HR Giger esque like yeah. Like the ground, the castle is sort of swallowing everyone and like breathing with them yeah. as this as this conspiracy is unfolding. Very Yeah, fitting. and that's where the sweat and that's where like the water comes in. It feels like it's all sweating, yeah. like it's nervous almost. Mm-hmm. Like like the set is almost as nervous as like Orson Welles's or uh, Macbeth's mind. Like I think 
that's an interesting thing that he does. He sort of like externalizes the, the mental state of Macbeth through the set. And I think that's something that is difficult to do for sure. And also difficult on like the budget restrictions that he has and shooting it in 23 days. It's like very impressive, you know, and sort of any you note, know, the next thing that we wanted to talk about is sort of the lighting and shadows of the film. Cause this film, I mean, it was dark you know, as hell since Matt and I were from film studies, like, you know, that people are going to talk about like German films right when they see this film, you know what I mean? They're like oh, German yeah. expressionism. Absolutely. Immediately. Yeah. Like, like when you see a shadow in the film, yeah. When you see a shadow in a film, it's immediately like nodding to German expressionism. There's no shadows without. So if, but, um, if that's what you think every time you see a shadow, was that just the only thing going through your mind for this entire movie? Because it looked like, I'm not it's sure not if to. you guys watched uh, game of Thrones, but it reminded me of the battle of Winterfell. So I'm making fun of those people because I think shadows don't always have to nod back to German expressionism, even though I like German expressionism. But like, I think the lighting and the shadows in particular and the darkness in the film are really well done, which contributes to like the swallowing up of these characters, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that, um, you know, the the it sort of, you know, feels very obvious to make the German expressionism or even the Universal Monsters comparison. But um, mm-hmm. I always take screenshots while I'm while I'm watching films, and I'm just looking through them now. And and like I have this yeah. one shot of uh, it's the introduction of Lady Macbeth when she's on her her bed of fur that she's like lying on while she while she yeah. like ruminates this new possibilities of power going through her head. Uh, one of my favorite sequences in the in the both in the play and yeah. in the film, she's almost like having an orgasm, basically just yeah. thinking about murdering people mm-hmm. and becoming queen it's it's psychotic yeah. but it, it, it um yeah. the shot of her in the bed to me is a callback for me to uh Murnau's Nosferatu of um yeah shots of uh of um can never remember what the the Mina character is called in that film I don't think it's called Mina because of the copyright issues whatever but the the Mina character mm-hmm. in, in in Nosferatu uh the, the shots of her in the bed with with uh with the vampire you know, creeping, creeping up on her. Hmm. Yeah. And isn't there lightning in the Macbeth film as well? Like the storms are boiling outside the window and like, Oh, constantly. You know, yeah. It was so, it was so yeah, dark yeah, yeah. that I couldn't particularly tell. Yeah. It's like that sequence is so sexual though. You're right. It, I was watching it and I was like, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus. Why Christ. do I have a boner? Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. The amount of like, just like raw, like, <laughs> masturbatory energy she's given off definitely yeah it was one of the strongest scenes of the film though that i loved it was just like it had this incredible like timbre to it and um i think the framing is also important we talked a little bit about it but there are all of these sort of close-ups of faces in this film which seems like sort of self-evident seeing that it is so performative and theatrical and there's so many monologues and everything but i think how he frames faces against walls and corners people like cinematically mm-hmm. is is really really good like like it contributes a lot to the scene there is yeah. a lot of cornering yeah you get these moments where um where you know we're talking about it in terms of theatricality but you never get this close when you're on the stage to get these sort of right. strong facial that's how you get thrown it's out sort of yeah yeah exactly <laughs> this is me going back to my film studies <laughs> days you know with uh Bella Balash <laughs> and the, the myth of the face and all that shit. Yeah, but um, yeah, 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 but yeah. with, you know, there are these moments where you have a character running uh, running directly to the camera and the camera almost pins them up against the wall, like you were saying, mm. and, and you get this really, really strong moment where you're you're locked in with whatever 
um, this character is is um, expelling from their mind. It's always some sort of like dark rumination or something in it. And it um, yeah. within these walls, within this set that is built, uh, the production design really gives this like enclosed, um, you're trapped with them sort of feeling. Yeah, and I was thinking about that too at the the dinner party they had or the banquet. I guess it's 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 kind of a sad banquet or whatever, but the ceilings are so low. Oh yeah. And they seem like so pinned in when they when they stand up next to the table, it's almost like they're touching the wall. Yeah, it and, makes it yeah, almost it, makes a mockery of that um of the yeah. dinner table sequence in Citizen Kane that like where they yeah. where they seem to be getting further and further apart as uh as the scene goes on when it cuts back and forth between Kane and his wife. Um, here it's yeah. it's just like there is no room to move like this mm-hmm. it, right. they're yeah. they're all locked in this room with crazy Macbeth and the ghosts that are haunting yeah. him yeah and even when they leave him just alone in the room still feels like it's so claustrophobic like he's sort of trapped in his own mind and that moment where you see Duncan on the other side of the table is so good mm-hmm. and especially the key lighting the key lighting on Duncan is so ghostly um, it looks awesome yeah, as as a lighting technician myself, like the the because I work uh, uh, doing grip and electric for reality TV, uh, you know, if you could believe it, uh, it's it's it, the stuff I watch in this. I'm like, how the hell did they do this in 1949 with the units that they had available back then? Like, there's some really creative lighting tricks and tricks and nonsense. Yeah. And going I think on what's here. also creative as well as the pacing of the film, um, the long shots, the long takes, and, and everything like that i think you know the pacing in this film is sort of smooth and silky as well which Mm -hmm. maybe lends to shakespeare i think that maybe has to do with you know adapting the source material but at the same time like he still chose to make the editing as sort of silky and long and drawn out you know as he did yeah i don't think that uh shakespeare had any editorial notes uh in in like the margins of Macbeth, where he was like yeah this i imagine this being extremely silky so I, I think for as, as much as I'm not necessarily a fan of Orson Welles for, uh, I don't know, just I, I, I think starring yourself in your own movies is, <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it's for it's a lot of the reason why I don't like M. Night Shyamalan, but that's a whole other discussion. I think I could take that and say if you watch uh, one of Rob's favorites, Effer Fake, you'd see that I think even Orson Welles hates the fact that he's in all of his movies. Uh, but he's the only one good enough to do it. <laughs> like he, is he's, that what he's, he's doing? He's he's sort of like uh, he's sort of never. He just wants to. He just wants to act and wants to direct and never wanted like the the legendary status. It feels by the end of it, or or you know you never know because he's always just a fucking prankster and he's pulling all yeah. these different uh, um, contradictory things yeah. always. Hmm. And I'd say self-awareness matters, at least to me. Like, for me, the awareness of, of Orson Welles knowing that he stars in all of his films is different. And I don't want to just pick on this guy every podcast than Tarantino and, the, like, self-awareness that he has in his films are very, you know, very different in scope. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think, like, like Tarantino and, the self, and, like, the lack of self-awareness that he has in his films, making all those homages and nods to B-movies and whatever... Um, the, the awareness that that is not that clever not being there bothers me more than just like Orson Welles starring in his films you know what I mean That's there's fair. there's both a power trip there's a power trip to both things well you know well it's I mean? it's it's the difference if we're going to make that comparison so it's the difference between um, like what I would call 
uh, like collageism uh, in terms of uh, Tarantino, where it's just like I like this, I like that, I like this, I like that. Which there's there's definitely a place for it. I'm not going to knock that as a concept. Whereas Wells's um, self referentiality or uh, meta filmmaking, if we want to use that word, is especially Macbeth, uh, very strongly Brechtian and very, mm-hmm. very strongly um, trying to reveal itself as production, as, you know, I am Orson Welles, here is my adaptation of, of Macbeth for you, in the same way that he would present the radio productions that he would do early in his career. Yeah, and our last point of analysis, too, that's a good point to, to end on with analysis, is that um, adaptation is sort of a hot-and-button topic in cinema, where everyone sort of has their own opinion, but the the mainstream opinion a lot of the times is that you want it to be sort of a carbon copy of your source material right which i think is very limiting in general and orson welles did not think about that in macbeth like he added characters he switched things up he switched lines of dialogue and i mean this is what we talked about in adaptation class that we were in that the carbon copy style is not at all sort of attractive at least to me i don't know about you but yeah i mean i think it um well it opens a lot of questions and makes i think macbeth really interesting because um you know, in talking about Wells as this person who is obsessed with the classics, who loved, you know, Moby Dick and and, and things like that, Moby Dick and and uh, Treasure Island and Dracula, all these these you know great English works. Um, you know, he has no concern for fidelity when making a film. However, you know, because as much as he respects all those things and he lets them, you know, really inform his his own creativity. Uh, you know, he's a filmmaker at heart, you know, and he's, he's there to make a film of Macbeth and not just, not just take words off the page and put them to film, but to see what this could look like in, in, you know, a filmic vision. Yeah. I I can actually really get behind that because while I, I am sometimes on the same side of people who are like, Oh, well the book did it better. Why didn't they just do it like the book? I get there's a reason why they don't do it like the book. And if you're just going to if you're just going to do a book as a movie word for word, then there was really no reason to go see the movie now was there. Exactly. Like like right. to me one of the most <laughs> this, you know, uh this is counterintuitive to uh some what some people think I think, but one of the most avant-garde genre films to me made in the past 10 years, um, which I, in a way, would compare it to Macbeth in terms of taking um, taking source material that is held up in such high regard, like Shakespeare, and adapting it in a way that completely re- re-envisions it um, in, in so many ways, is Rob Zombie's Halloween uh, diology, whatever, the, the two Halloween films, especially mm-hmm. the second one. It, go- it goes through such... Um, it has such strong aesthetic convictions while also playing such playing with the mythology of the source material so much that it becomes um even though you know we're talking about adaptation in terms of remakes and not from one medium to another um it still has that same sense of of i have such profound respect that for this piece but the respect for it can't be shown by just making it again i have to i have to right flow it through my own art and and do Mm -hmm. something different almost showing your appreciation for it by making by using it to create something a little bit different yeah you're not you know wells wasn't just saying i love i love macbeth let me make macbeth it's no i love macbeth 
let me show what Orson Welles, what Macbeth means to Orson Welles sort of thing. Yeah. And I think that gets to where I landed on adaptation is that um, if you deliver like the emotional quality of the piece and you deliver the ideological quality of the piece, that's really all I want. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I, of course I want to see characters. If we're talking about literature to film, I want to see the characters I like. I want to hear the lines I like, but you know, we could go on this Dune rant for a very long time with me. Oh God. You know, we don't we don't have time for that. When that when that film comes out, I think we're gonna have to have a special edition of this podcast where we uh, yeah. where we just let you go. I think you've just written that into reality. It'll basically be just a therapy session. But <laughs> what I what I hope for someone to make that film is that they have the ideas and they have the emotion of the piece. I don't need it to be a carbon copy of the book. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that's not what is important to be about art in that in that way. Um, and I think I think this is a good place. This was really fun. I'm I'm glad we talked about this film, and I think this is a good place for the analysis to end. Yeah, I'll be honest. And, um, you, you guys have turned me around a little bit on it. Um, I think oh, I, so I think glad, I was man. stuck a little more on the side of like, oh, it's an old movie. The Scottish accents mm-hmm. were a little hard to understand, and it was a little frustrating at times. But I definitely see the points you were making. Going going off, uh, you know, both both of what. Um, what what you guys are saying and you know the reservations you had about the film um i think that uh where macbeth really or where wells really comes together with shakespeare is in that later film chimes at midnight where um Hmm. it's you know an adaptation of of what uh henry the fourth and richard the third and a little bit of henry the fifth mixed in as well interesting i'm not sure but i'll I'll have to check it out if if you if you think i might enjoy that I'll, i'll add it to my growing list it's sort of like um, I think what it does is it uh, it steps over a line to the point where he's not even adapting Shakespeare so much as he's making a Shakespeare film and sort of cobbling together pieces where it's almost sort of moving towards that um, that Tarantino level of uh, self-referentiality, mm-hmm. just not as like tongue in cheek and uh, yeah, obnoxious. <laughs> Well, I wasn't going to go that far, but sure. Amazing. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> but I, I love that film. That's a wonderful film. And I, I think we'll watch that someday on this podcast. Um, but next week. So I think we're going to reach our first maybe challenging film. Bring it on. When I first saw this film in undergrad, it challenged me a lot. Um, but it opened up like corridors in my brain. You know, when like mm. you read a book or you watch a film and you feel like something just like opened up inside you and you're like able to appreciate things in a different way like concussions yeah to me it's it's to me uh, which rob i'm sure you know this very well it's the marquis de sade's work for me is really yeah. like the uh yeah, yeah. the artistic work that really blew everything blew everything up yeah yeah and for me and what we're going to watch next week is uh sink or swim by sue friedrich and um if you follow me, I guess, on Split Tooth Media, I was able to interview Sue Friedrich on the 30th anniversary of Sink or Swim a few months ago. So if you want to go check out that interview and, and get ahead of us, go for it. It was like one of the craziest, most surreal moments of my life, getting to talk to one of my favorite filmmakers about one of my favorite films. But um, it's a it can be a toughie because, I mean, as she says in the interview, like she doesn't intentionally make puzzles with her films. It's just her like expressing herself and trying to give... Um, 
trying to transmit the emotions that she felt at a certain point in her life to you. Um, and she just does that in a way that sometimes feels cryptic. Well, um, I'm not going to go and read that interview until after I watch the movie uh, in, yeah. in fear of spoilies. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not really much. It's not really a, a story based film, but I think uh, no, I think you're best uh, going into it as blind as possible. Exactly, I completely agree. And um, this has been the fourth installment of the the Art House Drive-In podcast. This was I can't believe we've already hit four. This is it's just flown by. We've hit four. We've had an illustrious guest on the show who hopefully will have will have many more times. Anytime I'll be back. I had I had a great time. Oh uh, and next time I yeah. promise to bring something. Uh, uh, well, next. Well, you may regret inviting me back because next time I'm coming. <laughs> I'm coming in with something. Something a little. Uh, something a little on the spicy. great side. <laughs> All yeah, right. Something a little spicy. Bring it on. I can take yeah, it. This was a good intro. This was a good intro, and next time you can scare me all you want, because as you know, I'm a scaredy cat, so now <laughs> next time I'll be like hiding under a sheet during the next podcast, yeah. talking about whatever you want us to watch. Perfect. But uh, thank, thanks for it. So everyone, go follow you know Split Tooth Media on Twitter and Facebook. Listen to Synesthesia. All that jazz. It's a jam. Listen to Synesthesia. It's an awesome podcast. Go you know read all our articles. Bennett Glace has an amazing interview with um, Patrick Wang that you know by the time we recorded this came out. Go check that out. Um, go check out my stuff and Matt if you have social media that you want to plug you can totally uh, do it I mean I uh, you could follow my Warhammer hobby page at uh, cult yeah. underscore of underscore imgarl ymgrl uh, on, on Instagram fuck it if I gotta plug something I might I as like well it. plug that that's the best plug that we're ever gonna get <laughs> on this podcast watch me paint oh, some amazing. stupid little alien boys I will actually oh, dude, thank I'll you wa- I'll watch that in a second oh man all right well thanks for listening guys you've been listening to a split tooth media presentation you can find us on letterboxd as art house driving and on twitter at art house in that's right we can't change it feel free to join us in our little cars we talk about films each week give or take probably 